0: Amen. We can dismiss our younger children to children's church at this time. And you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says, Preaching the Gospel. And I was very mean uh, this week because you have the references and not all the verses uh, written out. So you're actually going to have to look things up in your Bible. Developing a mean streak, I guess. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I've gotten to the last chapter in 2 Timothy. Hear God's word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word... Fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world surrounded by people who are turning away from the truth and wandering off into myths. We pray that your word would speak to us this morning, that we would not join that group, but that we would listen to your word. We would listen to the word of truth. We ask that you would do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for those of you that can remember uh, back to the 60s and 70s, um, if you remember back then, you remember going through the airport, there were these people there. And they wore funny robes and had funny haircuts and generally accosted you. They were the Hari Krishnas. But if you think they disappeared when the age of Aquarius ended... Today you just need to look in the next cubicle. They may be working in your office or wearing a suit with a full head of hair. Last month, the Hare Krishna celebrated their 40th anniversary and they've joined the American mainstream. Whereas once upon a time, the devotees were discouraged from maintaining any ties with the outside world, including their own families. Today, the Hare Krishna's mix and mingle like anyone else and they don robes and Sanskrit names only while at temple for services, and they don't do airports anymore. It's entirely possible these days that a Hare Krishna could be living next door to you and you wouldn't even know it, says Burke Roachford, a Middlebury College professor and author of a forthcoming book on Hare Krishna Transformed. He says they're just now part of the culture in ways the average person couldn't have imagined 20 or 25 years ago. Today in Washington, D.C., about 400 people attend weekly services. In total, the movement runs 400 temples worldwide and claims 1 million followers, 100,000 in the United States, about four times what it was in the 80s, although scholars believe the numbers are actually much smaller. Based on the teachings of 15th century philosopher Caitanya Mahaprabhu. That's the closest we're going to get. Hare Krishna worshiped uh, by repeatedly chanting God's name. They believe in simple living. They're prohibited from eating meat, gambling, intoxication, and sex outside of marriage. They were denounced by many parents as a cult. Scholars say it's actually quite an orthodox version of Hinduism. At today's temple, young people in jeans and t-shirts worship alongside middle-aged white men in saffron robes and Indian immigrants in flowing saris. The Hare Krishna communities offer premarital counseling, participate in interfaith activities, run social services, and offer babysitting, just the kind of institutionalization their early converts were fleeing. At the same time, much of what made them stand out as unusual has now become part of mainstream American spirituality, including yoga, vegetarianism, chanting, and concepts like karma and reincarnation. Spokesman for the Hare Krishnas here in America, Anutama Daza, says a lot of people on the streets now believe in those things. A lot of things that were considered outlandish or threatening are now taking place in the basement of Christian churches. That article was in Newsweek about three weeks ago. A lot of things that were considered outlandish or threatening are now taking place in the basement of Christian churches. How do we move from preaching the Word of God as truth to baptizing Eastern polytheistic religions and moving them into the church basement? It happens, it has happened, it will continue to happen. Because by and large, the church in America has abandoned the authority of God's Word. In our passage today, Paul has moved from exhorting Timothy to live by the book to charging Timothy to preach the book. You'll notice the connection between what Paul says uh, the scriptures are at the end of 2 Timothy 3, which we saw last week, and this particular charge as to what Timothy is to do with those scriptures. And since those scriptures are not the opinions of man, since they're not the pious reflections of sincere saints on who God is and what he might want us to do, since they are in fact God's words to us, since they're the only authoritative rule of faith and practice, Timothy is supposed to not only live by these words, he is to preach those words. He is to preach the message which is found in the book. And so the logic of 2 Timothy 3, moving to 2 Timothy 4, is live by the book, preach the book. Paul's focus, of course, is on his protege, Timothy, quiet, shy, timid Timothy. And the heat of the apostle's focus is intensified by this burning realization that he is, in truth, a dying man. The very next verse after today's passage, Paul says, Fry, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is come. He's facing martyrdom. He's going to die soon. It may be weeks. It may be days. We don't know. And the charge here in these five verses initiates the final thoughts of this apostolic last will and testament. Now, again, the charge is given to a preacher, and by extension to all preachers of the gospel. Now, don't think that means that you're off the hook. I know what you're thinking. It's a passage written to pastors. It contains a charge to preachers. And that's true, it does. It contains an explicit exhortation from Paul to Timothy, and the applications to ministers and all who preach and teach the gospel are obvious. But even when a passage of Scripture is directed to preachers, there are still practical applications for every Christian. And I want you to see some of them today as we work through this passage. I want you to encourage you that this passage is just as practical, just as applicable, just as important to you as it is to those who preach and teach the Word of God. So we'll start with verse 1. We start by seeing that this is a serious charge. A serious charge. That should be the first blank there in your outline. He says, I charge you. Timothy is hearing Paul say, Now, Timothy, I'm about to give you a serious charge. And you can imagine what he's thinking. Paul, what's been going on so far? I mean, all that you've told me in chapter 3 is not serious, then I don't know what serious is. It's not like Paul has been light and trivial up to now and now he's getting serious. I mean, Timothy was probably trembling to hear Paul say, now I'm serious. You think I was serious when I was telling you what the Word of God was? You think I was serious when I was telling you to follow me in suffering and persecution and hardship? You think I was serious when I was telling you about false teachers who are going to get into the church and hurt people? Well, now I'm really going to get serious. And so he impresses on Timothy the significance of what he's doing by saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. This charge to preach the word, Paul solemnly delivers in the name and presence of God in the light of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead and to consummate his kingdom. It's difficult to imagine a weightier introduction. And Paul has invoked here what is, in fact, an eternal, unchangeable reality, the actual presence of God the Father and his Son, Christ Jesus. They were present. They saw Paul write the words to Timothy. The Holy Spirit inspired these words. They saw Timothy read them for the first time. They read Timothy's heart. The serious charge is electrified by these three realities, in this verse about Christ, which Timothy gets full voltage. The first one is the judgment of Christ. Paul makes it clear that it is Christ Jesus, not God the Father, who is to judge the living and the dead. Early in his ministry, Jesus warned his detractors in John 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All judgment is committed to Jesus. And later in that same discussion, Jesus informed them. And he, God the Father, has given him, God the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now that's a loaded term. Jesus is claiming here that he is the awesome Son of Man of the vision of Daniel in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament whom Daniel saw coming in the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, and where Daniel records in Daniel 7, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is claiming that title for himself the awesome Son of Man who came in the flesh as Jesus Christ and lived on earth as the one appointed to serve the Father and did so perfectly, will be the judge. Not only of Timothy's service, but everyone's service. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to remember something about the Redeemer. He's not only your Savior, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And you know, we confess that every time we say the Apostles' Creed, which we normally do when we have communion. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Paul's saying, Timothy, I don't want you to ever forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to judge the quick and the dead, and that means you. And it's meant to energize Timothy, to add more voltage to Paul's charge. The realization that our service will be judged by the servant of all servants, is jolting. John Calvin said of this, he makes special mention of the judgment of Christ because he will require of us, who are his representatives, a stricter account of our failures in his ministry. And that caution is several times in Scripture in James 3. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So the first reality he confronts him with is the judgment of Christ. The second reality is the appearing of Christ. The approaching reality of Jesus' brilliant appearing is Epiphany, which Scripture describes describes as the rising of the sun. Paul calls in Titus 2, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The judgment of Christ, the appearance of Christ, and then third, the kingdom of Christ. And this reality is going to be followed by his kingdom. His judgment is appearing, his kingdom. In the words of Revelation 11, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Which most people know those words, not from the scriptures, but from the majesty chorus of Handel's Messiah. Paul's charge, so serious, so solemn, so jolting, so uh, charged, Activates the current of Timothy's soul. And it must do the same to us. Because Jesus is also present with us. And his judgment and his appearing and his kingdom are coming. The second thing we see here in this charge to Timothy is the charge is filled with serious content. Look at verse 2. Serious content. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And the abruptness of these commands conveys a sense of urgency, terminal urgency. Timothy must waste no time. He must get to it. It's clear that some of the commands are directed to Timothy's reticence, the things he naturally didn't like to do. And to be honest, no preacher likes to do some of these things. And you should worry about those who do. The content of Paul's charge is broken down into four parts. The focus is to preach the word. It's central to all gospel ministry. Paul demands that Timothy preach the word. You say most preachers could recite this command in Greek. Kerexon tan logon. It literally says herald the word. I don't think that's true anymore. But it was true once. It was foreshadowed in this letter back in chapter 2 when he told Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. One who, as we noticed a few weeks ago, gets it right and gives it straight. And by placing the command to preach the word first and then enlarging it in the following commands, Paul makes it the signature mark of Christian ministry. The message to Timothy is, though you may be shy, though you would rather stay in the background, you must give yourself to the public preaching of the Word of God. Again, it's not a matter of inclination or personality type. It's a matter of the, the divine call and obedience to that call. And we can't gloss over the obvious, as so many people do today, as so many preachers do today. It is the Word that is to be preached. Eminent theologian and uh, patristic scholar Thomas Oden says, There is no hint here that preaching is thought of primarily as self-expression or subjective experience or feeling disclosure or autobiography or telling one's story so as to neglect scripture. The whole counsel of God is to be preached without fanciful, idiosyncratic amendment or individualistic addition. In other words... Don't preach yourself, which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We are to preach Christ, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else which, again, is exactly what Paul did and charges us to do. In 1 Corinthians 1, he said, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the focus is to preach the word. Then there's the urgency of the charge. He tells them, be ready, in season and out of season. I can tell you from experience, it's one thing to be prepared to preach at the weekly services, which for me is an ordinary scheduled obligation. And I'd like to say I was always prepared for it. That's probably not the case. You do it long enough, you can wing it here and there. But it is a whole other thing entirely to be ready to declare the whole counsel of God at the drop of a hat. And Paul demands both. And apparently he's not real concerned whether it's convenient or not. He tells Timothy, you can't reserve preaching only to when you feel like it or when you're psychologically ready or when the time seems good. My own experience is that when I feel least like preaching, or when I don't feel good about my preaching or when I think my sermon just plain stinks, Very often, those are the times that God uses most. And frankly, there are times when I uh, came to the pulpit thinking I had the greatest sermon ever written, only to discover nobody else thought that. (laughs) And sometimes I trust the rhetoric or the emotion or the clever lines to do the work instead of simply trusting God's Word. And Paul is telling Timothy and me and you, let the Word Do the work. Let the word do the work. And what work is the word to do? Well, we see that in the scope of the charge, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. It's more than the mere conveying of information. There is information, but it's so shaped and applied that it functions in one of these transforming ways, which means a minister of the gospel is necessarily a spiritual physician, a soul doctor discerning the ailment and knowing what remedy to apply. Why? Because in every congregation, there's people tormented by doubts. They need to be persuaded and convicted by sound teaching. Others have fallen into sin and need to be rebuked. Others are haunted by fears and need to be encouraged. And God's word does all this and more. Pity the minister of the word who applies encouragement when rebuke is called for or rebuke when it's people desperately need encouragement. A little bit ago I said that no preacher likes to do some of these things and you should worry about those who do. If you enjoy correcting and rebuking, you're probably not fit for the ministry. But if you don't do it when you need to, you're shirking your God-given responsibility and that's insulting to God. Reproof, showing people where they're wrong, And rebuke, telling them to stop, requires that you can't be a people pleaser or seeking popularity, which are terrible temptations for preachers. We all want everyone to like us. And it requires that you find no joy in setting others straight. some degrees, it's like parenting. It ought to hurt you as much as the kids when you have to discipline them or correct them or rebuke them. That shouldn't be a fun thing for parents. It shouldn't be a fun thing for elders either. But most of all, it requires the next imperative that we get, the next command, that you encourage uh, people and exhort them with complete patience and teaching. Paul's view of the ministry demands a focus on the long haul, with personal patience, on great care, with the substance of what is preached. It's not simply a job to be done. It demands a Christian mind devoted to thinking through and implementing all that is embraced by preaching with complete patience. Reproof and rebuke must be teamed with careful teaching or they will be unprofitable. Paul's telling Timothy, you have to come alongside your people with encouraging words. That's right, you're doing fine, you're making progress. That was great, that was beautiful. And in doing that, you're called to immense patience because you rarely see quick results in ministry. I would be a fool if I expected everyone's life to be dramatically changed by one sermon. I don't expect this sermon or any sermon to dramatically change your life overnight. Now, occasionally that happens, and I have to say I'm usually just as surprised as everyone else. But I do expect that your life will be changed by the accumulated effect of hearing God's Word preached. It's not one sermon doing the work. It's all the sermons doing the work. It's the whole counsel of God working on the whole of your life. So why does Paul give this serious charge filled with serious content? It's because it's given in the middle of a serious context. All sees today, it wasn't deliberate. Go to verse 3, serious context. Remember back uh, last few weeks that uh, we looked at uh, chapter 3, He showed how important godly mentors are, how bad the world can be, and how unshakable the scriptures are. So Paul's now delivering this charge with an expectation. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Immediately after telling Timothy to preach the word with complete patience and teaching, he tells them there are some people who will not endure sound teaching, but will prefer teachers to say what they want to hear. How is it that people turn away from the word, seeking out preachers who make us feel good, Jesus explained in the parable of the four soils in Matthew 13 that many people who profess faith really don't have any. They're actually unbelievers, and it's only the fourth soil, the fruit-bearing soil, that has real faith. People love to hear something different and sensational. Having itching ears is literally tickled in their hearing. So they seek teachers who will confirm their illusions. In the fourth century, one of the early church fathers Gregory of uh, Nazanidas um, wrote about concerning itching ears. He wrote this in like 380 uh, A.D. He said, when this syndrome is in place, people who call themselves Christians will find the truth in Christ Jesus intolerable and will seek to stamp it out. You can look at the church in America today. Preachers fill sports arenas by telling people what they want to hear about their money or, politics, or by entertaining them, or by proclaiming bizarre doctrines that appeal to the curiosity. Whole intellectual careers are made and spent on de- demythologizing the Bible, reducing the words of Jesus to a few moralizing soundbites. The masses prefer myth to truth. And that is why you must hear the word preached in its historical setting in the context of the whole Bible, making the appropriate biblical connections and discerning all the ways that it's a releva- uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul sums up the necessities of this charge in verse 5. He said, As for you, be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy is literally to be sober and cool in all circumstances. Like a commercial pilot who has to stay calm in the midst of an emergency when the passengers are crying out with fear. Stability must characterize the preacher in an upside down world. The gospel is his life's work. He says, Do the work of an evangelist. The good news should be constantly on his lips the message that Jesus is descended from David and raised from the dead. He's not to skip any area of ministry. He says, Fulfill your ministry. Do all the imperatives, for they will always be imperative. And so they will. For Timothy, for me, for all of us, the years will fly by like fence posts on a country road. In November, I will have been ordained to preach 15 years. Come January, I will have been preaching at this church for 10. You and I have changed a lot in the last 10 years. You and I will continue to change a lot in the next 10. But God's call will never change. Jesus, your judge, your savior, your king, will always be present when you hear the word preached in this place. But we must continue to stand guard to make sure that it is the word that is preached and heard. Or we'll slip into the category of people who will not endure sound teaching who will not listen to the truth who wander off in the myths there are more itching ears within evangelicalism than we would like to admit in a recent newsweek beliefnet.com poll they polled all sorts of groups of people 68% of self-identified evangelicals believe that more than one faith can be a path to salvation Unfortunately for them, I believe it was Jesus who said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we wonder how the theology of the Hare Krishnas has showed up in the basements of Christian churches. When Paul was writing Timothy, there were problems with persecution, with false teachers, with bad theology, and with people in churches who didn't want to hear the Word of God, most of all because it made them uncomfortable. And today, when we read what Paul wrote Timothy, there are problems with persecution, with false teachers, with bad theology, and with people in churches who don't want to hear the Word of God, most of all because it makes them uncomfortable. Nothing's changed. And so with all these issues, we have to ask the question, why preach? The short answer is, because because God tells us to. If Paul is telling Timothy what he must do for the people of God to be a faithful minister, then you, as the people of God, must need what Paul is telling Timothy to do. In other words, if Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, in order for you to be a faithful minister, you must preach the Word, then it must mean that the people of God need to hear the Word preached. Why? Because people still need to hear the Gospel. They need to hear about God's grace. They need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that they're big sinners who can't earn their way to heaven. They need to hear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God has chosen to use the preaching of the gospel as his primary means of bringing his transforming grace into the lives of people. The obvious question is, why preaching? James Montgomery Boyce, longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia until his death uh, six years ago wrote, the obvious answer is that preaching is a means of conversion. It is by the preaching of the word of God that God moves in the hearts and lives of people to turn them from sin to Christ. The way they are to hear is by preaching. Someone has to go and let this message of salvation, centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, be known to them. This is the way of conversion, because what God does in preaching is to take his word, which is not the mere word of men, but the word of God, And use it in a supernatural way to create spiritual life within the heart of the one listening. It's no different for me in Leesburg as it is for Pastor Zama in Burma. God ordains the same thing in all places. It's pretty much what Paul wrote in Romans 10 said, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul not only wrote about preaching, he practiced it. Luke describes Paul's ministry that way. In Acts 28, from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul then wrote about preaching God's word, practiced it himself, and as a mentor encourages his protege, Timothy, to preach God's word. He reminded him back in chapter four, First Timothy 4, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and teaching. He was reminding him that his priority is the proclamation of God's Word to God's people in the setting of corporate worship. So what is the problem today? The problem is not just that liberal churches have let bad theology take over. It's that evangelical churches have allowed bad theology to take over. And most of the time, they don't even realize it. In the last 30 years, preaching to people in the context of modernity has been focused on a drive for relevance, resulting in an increase in the employment of topical preaching. Jason Clark is the coordinator of Emergent UK, a network of emerging churches in the United Kingdom. Recently commented, in this response, preaching addresses the concerns of modern culture by making sermons shorter, moving away from detailed biblical exegesis, using the linguistic tools of metaphor and simile, and application to everyday life. These preaching events will have functional titles such as how to live a life of meaning or how to be a good parent. And yet this move towards relevant preaching has been identified by numerous uh, authors and scholars is largely non-theological and mostly pragmatic, i.e. whatever works to make the church more popular and produce numerical growth. Marva Dorn complains, uh, one author, that ministering merely to felt needs and choices cheats worshipers of the truths and maturity they will need to engage their wills over their emotions. And that's hard because we usually don't want what we need. We live in a society that doesn't like hard thinking, and it certainly doesn't like self-examination in the area of sin. But when we come to a passage and see God saying to a preacher, preach the word, then we need to pray, Lord, if that's what I need, and you say in your word that it is, then make me want it. Cultivate in me a desire for what I need, not for what I think I need. Cultivate me in me a desire to want what I really need, not just what I want. That's a pretty hard prayer request. He said, People of God need the word of God preached. He says, The people of God need to want what they need. <clears throat> I think that means I've been preaching too long. I don't have it today. I don't have enough time for it to work. I was struck. Most of this last part comes out of my dissertation. This is what I wrote about. This is what you gave me all that time off to do. I was struck by one pastor in California. His name is Rudy Carrasco. He was challenged about preaching, and he said, Preaching is often too packaged and clean to connect with our listeners. Every day, every week, there's stuff that pops up in life, and it's not resolved. It's just crazy and confusing and painful. And when people come across with three answers, and they know everything, and they have this iron sheen about them, I'm just turned off, period. I'm just turned off. And I think that's not unique to me. See, despite sincerely wanting to offer relevant help to people, we do more harm because by and large, it simply doesn't work. So be cautious of any sermon or any book that gives you the three answers to this, the four keys to that, the seven steps to those. For me, that's an automatic red flag. Because there's no formula that's going to make your life work. And sometimes life doesn't work all, all that well. Paul's writing this from prison in Rome. And the problem with focusing on relevance is we always forget to ask relevant for what? Relevant for who? Oz Guinness, who's a great writer, says relevance can become lethal to truth. If people are doing something simply because it's relevant without knowing why, but truth gives relevance to relevance. Truth gives relevance to relevance. And he says relevance becomes irrelevant if it's not related to truth. Without truth, being relevant simply doesn't make any difference. One pastor says the temptation is to focus on how people feel when they come to worship. It creates the danger that truth will be compromised in order to avoid unpleasant feelings. But a strange believer needs to feel guilty. He needs to repent in order to feel better. And an unregenerate sinner needs to come under deep conviction of sin in order to be brought to repentance and faith. The exhortation of Paul to preach the word depends on the authority of the scripture being accepted by the preacher. The Bible is already relevant, we don't make it relevant. The issue is one of authority. Is the sermon preached as the authoritative word of God? Is the sermon heard? as the authoritative Word of God. There's two parts to this. Calvin said there's three marks to the church, and we always sort of edit it a little bit. He didn't say one is that the Word of God is preached. He said that the Word of God is preached and heard. If it's not authoritative, its relevance doesn't matter. Paul was fully determined to carry out his ministry of preaching the Word of God. He did it in the face of the tyranny of the practical, the tyranny of the immediate, the tyranny of the productive, because his confidence was in the Word of God. He confirmed this in Colossians 1, which we read in our responsive reading this morning. He says, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. So which way will we go? Will the authority of God's word trump our attempts at relevance? I mean, how did it work for Jesus? Mark Driscoll of Mars Hills Fellowship in Seattle says, preaching becomes principles for empowerment, principles for success, and victorious Christian living. And most of the preaching is about people, not God. There's a reason they killed Christ, and it wasn't because they didn't like his method of successful living. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not... uh, plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What is essential? It is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Because as that is done, God the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word to the hearts of Christian people and to the hearts of unbelievers too. Peter makes it clear that it is the work of God accomplishing the work. He writes, he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news preached to you. So you have a judgment to make. Are you hearing the authoritative word of God? Is the word of God living and abiding in you? Is the Word of God changing your life over the long haul? Or are you just collecting good advice? Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Emily, Father, we don't want to hear that we don't listen to the truth, that we wander off into myths. We don't want to be people who listen to the Word of God but then turn away and forget it. Father, we're prone to all those things. And if we are not careful. If we do not listen to the Word, pretty soon we'll be chanting in the basement. So Father, I pray this morning that Your Spirit would make Your Word powerful and effective in our lives. That we would listen to it. That we would let it soak in deep. That we wouldn't forget it. That we would go back and read it again and again. That we would listen to it. Father, help us to want what we need. Father, that's my prayer this morning, is that we would want what we need. We ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.